0: We are so thankful you're here this morning. We have several guests with us. We're appreciative of that. We want you to know that you're always welcome here at the Midway Congregation. We invite you to let us get to know you. If you're looking for a home for, uh, in which to work and worship for the Lord, then we want to talk with you. We want you to be a part of this congregation. We were privileged yesterday to have uh, Brother Matt Vega with us to speak at our uh, leadership workshop, be one of our speakers. We appreciate him so much. We appreciate the work that he has done for the kingdom of the Lord throughout the years. I first became acquainted with Matt through polishing the pulpit back a number of years ago, and I appreciate all the, the good that he does for us there in polishing the pulpit and helping us to understand various matters, not just matters that are concerning the law, but uh, his preaching and his work with the Lord's church is outstanding. We appreciate that. he is. Brought his wife Jennifer with him today, and we're so thankful that she's able to be here. Matt and Jennifer have three children. They have a daughter by the name of Shelby, who's married to Seth Kemp. A daughter by the name of Anna, and a son by the name of Reed. And, and those uh, three children are all uh, grown. I guess y'all are getting used to the, or getting ready for the, for the uh, uh, empty nest years. But uh, that's always good as well. This morning, as you, if you were here for a Bible class hour, you know that he presented a wonderful lesson. Uh, Matt is one of the things that, that we sometimes look to him for, as I've already alluded to in, in the introduction this morning, is he does things in regard to law and the church law, and one of the reasons we do that is he's a graduate of the prestigious school, Yale University, a law uh, graduate, and so we look to him, but... Uh, we're also thankful for his work at Faulkner and at Fried Hardeman, but again, most especially for his work in the kingdom of God. He is a wonderful, outstanding preacher of the gospel, and so we will, at this time, allow him to come do just that. With Matt. You know, in the
1: Bible class hour, I tried to talk about what motivated me to become uh, more involved with Christian education for the last eight or nine years, first at at Faulkner at the law school there as a law professor and and as the dean of the law school and now at Freed Hardeman University. And part of it is because I believe that we are at a crossroads, at a tipping point in our society where uh, we are fighting for the, the, the minds and the souls of the next generation and I believe Christian education is uh, a blessing from God to help the church uh, uh, stand firm in the truth and and, uh, prepare uh, the next generation to lead the church, and I believe in that very strongly. That said, um, there's also a selfish side of why I enjoy uh, being on a college campus. And that is the relationship that I've been able to develop with young people from around the United States. Um, At Freight-Hardeman, there are more than 35 countries uh, uh, represented, Uh, states are represented there, and 12 countries represented on campus. And at Faulkner, there was a lot of diversity as well. And I developed a relationship with a number of my law students by having a devotional in my home uh, uh, during the midweek and... One of the relationships uh, bloomed and I became close to uh, one of the law students' parents who uh, was a foreign exchange student at a small high school in North Alabama many, many years ago. And he was from Switzerland and then he went back and established a church there because he was converted here as as a high school student in North Alabama. And uh, that church is still very faithful in the Geneva, Basel, Switzerland area. And uh, they invited me, because of my relationship with his son, who was one of my law students, um, to go over with my family and retreat with them. And in Europe, um, Europeans have much more vacation than we do. Uh, They'll have two or three times the average vacation that we have. And so the church there will spend two weeks out of every year of their vacation uh, together at retreat. And they'll go up into the mountains and they'll study God's word and pray and fellowship for a solid uh, period of time. It's very intense. Very inspiring, very uplifting, and I encourage uh, those of you that have thought about um, doing something like that for a weekend, even. Uh, I encourage you to participate in something like that. I think it would really um, e- it help you grow and help you spiritually. But during that two weeks, I learned a lot about European culture that I didn't know from the perspective of someone who, or people that lived there especially Christians that live there, and the persecution that they face. This is one of the uh, most historical uh, cathedrals, monasteries in the city where this church uh, thrives, and that uh, building uh, is no longer used for any religious purpose. It has now been converted to a natural history museum, and that can be said of a lot of cathedrals throughout Europe. Is they no longer serve any religious purpose. They have been made secular. And that's because of the the decline of religiosity in Europe as a whole. And yet, this small church of probably 150 members or so um, was thriving. Not to say that they didn't undergo some persecution. Uh, They were uh, living or worshiping out of an office complex. And the office complex was, you know, in the downtown area of the city and they were subjected to a lot of, of pressure for example the city was fighting them over ordinances at that time uh, noise ordinances and basically insisting that they not sing. Uh, and because it was taking too much, making too much noise and disturbing the neighbors. Uh, now again, we didn't use aca- instrumental music. It was a cappella. And so you're not talking about a very loud noise. And yet, the city was you know, just antagonistic towards um, religious groups in general. Now, the reason why I mentioned that experience to you is because um, I, I think it's important that we recognize that there is a large segment of our, of our leadership in this country that idolize Europe and the way things are done in Europe and the socialist approach to, to uh, government. And yet uh, there is very little uh, to be spoken of in a positive way about religious freedom in that country. I was amazed that Switzerland, which was the home of Zwingli and, and John Calvin and others that were responsible for um, trying to uh, uh, reform um, the Catholic Church after Martin Luther began the Protestant movement and yet there's very little honor that's paid to those men over there now. You can go to Zwingli's house and open up his Bible and there's no security and there's uh, no charge for admission and there's one little old uh, individual that will, will show you around if you would like. But, but you can tell that it's not valued. it's not That kind of history is not important to them anymore. And so to me, um, this is a, a story that we need to learn from before we follow suit. Uh, and Europe is uh, part of our western heritage but they have abandoned their first love they have abandoned uh, their knowledge of God and America needs to take that as a warning we identified when we founded this country as a first freedom when we first passed the Constitution, the very first Congress met in 1789, and they thought it important that we go ahead and put down in writing uh, some basic rights, the Bill of Rights, the first uh, ten amendments to the United States Constitution, not because uh, they thought it was novel, but because they thought they better just memorialize it just in case we forget that there are certain rights that are inalienable, that were given by God, and that that predate government. And the very first one, we call the First Amendment, was freedom of religion. And the Congress uh, passed uh, the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And yet, over time, we have found in this country kinks in that freedom. We have, one time and time again, undermined that freedom, even at the level of the U.S. Supreme Court. Most recently, uh, I wanted to uh, just make you aware of some of the things that churches are facing across this country as we speak. For example, this is a photograph of a tent that was set up temporarily in the parking lot of a church parking lot in Louisiana. They decided that they wanted to have sort of an open tent meeting uh, to sort of uh, really try to impact the community and um, have their services in that tent meeting rather than in a church building for, temporarily just for a couple of weeks. And the city came out and they actually fined them. And the reason was is the uh, music, the worship service, was too loud for the neighborhood. There was no ordinance that the sheriff could point to, so they asked, well, how loud is too loud? And he said, 60 decibels. Well, folks, your dishwasher is louder than 60 decibels. You can't have a normal conversation with an individual face-to-face at 60 decibels. He was basically prohibiting them from being able to use their own property to conduct a worship service outdoors. How about this one? This gentleman not once but twice, was fired from a high-level position with the state government, first on the West Coast and more recently in Georgia. Why? Because of what he preached from the pulpit of his own local congregation, not as the minister, but as a lay minister, just as a member of the congregation that occasionally would speak sort of like I do. And yet, he preached against homosexuality. And therefore, after he was hired to be the head of the Department of Health for the state of Georgia, they fired him when one of the employees found a copy of his sermon on the website of the local church posted on the web. They circulated it, and the consensus was that that was too bigoted for him to be able to work for for the state of Georgia. And all he did was preach what the Bible has to say on homosexuality. How about this individual?
0: There was a church
1: that was trying to uh, take advantage of the local state park in Missouri and baptize persons. And the uh, local forest workers there, forest uh, officers there, uh, stopped them and said that you have to um, get a permit. Now, mind you, you didn't have to get a permit to fish there, you didn't have to get a permit to swim in the waters there. But if you wanted to engage any First Amendment expression, that's the phrase they used, what they were talking about was baptisms, then you had to not only get a permit, you had to get it at least 48 hours in advance. Now you and I know what the, uh, what the necessity is of baptism and the uh, risk that you take once you realize that you're a sinner lost in your sins, waiting even two days. The Lord could come back. And therefore they had to follow Acts 5 and obey God rather than man. Now, fortunately, you had two congressmen step up and force the National Service to back down and remove that requirement in Missouri. But the fact that our National Service, National Forest Service, would, uh, Park Service, would try to impose that requirement just on religious folks should be concerning to you given the First Amendment. Now, I give you those examples only to lead to a discussion about the most recent one. And that is what our U.S. Supreme Court did on June 26th of last year. And that is that they decided, despite thousands of years of history, despite the uh, biological nature of human beings and a man and a woman and, and how they uh, biologically uh, 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 complement one another, despite the fact that science suggests uh, uh, that, uh, that what the best uh, family that you can have is a biologically intact family with a mother and a father, they decided to redefine marriage in a radical way. No longer is it defined as a relationship between a man and a woman. It can now be defined as a relationship between two men or two women. And so the question has come up, and the Supreme Court refused to answer it in a 100-page opinion. What about a request to conduct a same-sex wedding in this church building? You know, they're willing to control us and license us and fine us in many ways, but are they willing to tell us what we can and can't do in this building? And what's been interesting is the fact that the Supreme Court did not unequivocally say, uh, yes, you have the right to refuse a same-sex couple who asks to conduct their same-sex wedding in your building. This was the decision. You can see the five justices at the top voted for in favor of recognizing same-sex marriage and the right to marry uh, someone of the same-sex The four that are faces are grayed out, one of whom has departed and now needs to be replaced, Scalia, um, opposed that. And they not only invalidated invalidated same-sex marriage bans in several states, including Tennessee and Alabama, but they also required every state to recognize those marriages if they took place in other states and required them to license, going forward, any same-sex couple that requested to be allowed to get married in their state nationwide and it was all based on the general right to personal choice regarding marriage the problem with that is there is no such general right we have never recognized the right for you to marry whomever you want you can't marry your cousin you can't marry a child you can't you can't marry a lot of individuals that you may want to marry For example, even this decision doesn't allow you to marry more than one person of your choice. And yet the legal principle of marrying whomever you want, if that was a real principle, has no principle basis to stop you from practicing polygamy, for example. And so in my opinion, that's a principle that doesn't exist and it was a political expedient. It was an attempt for them politically to do what they wanted to do, not what the law, the First Amendment required, or what logic and history demanded. So... The bottom line is that they have imposed uh, a change in our culture that will come in conflict with what I believe the church stands for and teaches and has taught for thousands of years. Even someone like Bill O'Reilly recognizes the risks. He understood that he, and he's predicted that this could result in some kind of uh, conflict where the church may lose its tax-exempt status and no longer have uh, the uh, special benefits and, and appreciation society has always given to the church because of all of its works of benevolence and, and what it stood for in, in communities over time. In fact, even the Supreme Court uh, was very cautious about what they were willing to say the First Amendment means anymore. Um, this comes from the Supreme Court's majority opinion where they try to indicate that they still are not trying to stop you from exercising your First Amendment rights. But what you'll notice is they say that you may continue to advocate with utmost severe conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriages should not be condoned. And then later on in that opinion, they say that you can continue to seek to teach those principles. But all that means is that what the uh, dissent opinion pointed out It means that they are limiting what the First Amendment means. It means that you have the right to believe or think something, and you may even be able to teach it and preach it from this pulpit, but you can't necessarily act according to those beliefs, not under the First Amendment protection. This is what Chief Justice Roberts, who dissented in that opinion, said. He said the majority graciously, he says that tongue-in-cheek, suggests that religious believers may continue to advocate and teach their views of marriage. The First Amendment guarantees, however, the freedom to exercise religion, and that's much broader than just thinking or talking ominously. That is not a word that the majority uses in their opinion they're not willing to even say what the Constitution says, which is you have the free exercise of religion, not the free thinking of religion, not even the free speaking of religion, but the exercise of religion. They are not willing to tell you you have that right anymore. And depending on who replaces Scalia, you're at a tipping point in whether or not religious freedom in this country is going to continue to be degraded and diminished. Now, all that means that there's a conflict between our culture that we live in and what we as a church stand for. And Chief Justice Roberts believes that that conflict is fairly inevitable. And he was unable to explain to our satisfaction, uh, to my satisfaction at least, what would happen in several real concrete examples. For example, how about a religious college that uh, has married student housing? Can it say that only heterosexual married couples can take advantage of their student housing. The Supreme Court raised that example and said we're not sure what the courts are going to say on that matter. How about a religious adoption agency who wants to only put children in the homes of heterosexual couples where there is a mother and a father? Again, the Supreme Court was unwilling to clarify that issue. And in fact, there have been adoption agencies in states which have been more progressive in this area that have had to close their doors, uh, else they would have been forced to compromise and allowed placements in homosexual homes. And then finally, the tax-exempt status of some religious organizations that oppose same-sex marriage may be in jeopardy. So these are things that not I am predicting, is, but I am suggesting to you that the Supreme Court and the dissenting opinions in the Supreme Court, those justices have suggested, are in jeopardy uh, now and today. Basic staples of First Amendment. Here are some unanswered questions that affect this congregation. Whether a preacher must perform a same-sex wedding. Whether a church must take its, make its facilities available for same-sex wedding events. Whether a church must hire an LGBT employee. Whether the church must provide same-sex spousal benefits to employees. We need clarity in the courts on those issues. Unfortunately, it's going to cost lots of money to defend against cases that are trying to push the envelope and answer those questions. Yes, you have to accommodate. You can't refuse to hire somebody. You have to provide benefits that are contrary to your conscience. And in those courts, those those, uh, churches will have to defend themselves uh, and it will be very costly. Hopefully we can get answers uh, with other religious groups fighting those battles uh, that will help us be able to uh, defend ourselves without going through so much legal expense. But I want to spend just a few minutes not dealing with the solution, the practical legal solution to those problems. We worked with the elders yesterday in developing policies and agreements and, and uh, uh, applications for use of the building that will hopefully set up the strongest defense possible and ensure that we, as a religious people, as the people of God, can continue to worship and continue to hire and continue to use this building in a way that glorifies God and that does not facilitate or promote sin of any nature. And so I hope that you'll support the elders as they begin that uh, process to get the proper legal documentation in place to ensure the best possible defense while these cases are being tried out in the courts over the next year or two. But what I want to remind you as a people this morning is about how we got there and what our response should be. So let's begin in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 because I believe Romans 1 and 2 are very insightful about the nature of sin and how it affects and shapes a culture and how that culture can then threaten the church. I believe that it begins by suppressing the truth, by pushing it down and not wanting to talk about it and being silent about it as I talked about from the, uh, in the Bible class hour with the quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Now, let me give you an example of how I believe we're suppressing some basic truths in our society today. Until the mid-20th century, the Supreme Court says in their 100-page opinion, same-sex intimacy long had been condemned as immoral. That's on page 7 of this Supreme Court decision. What's the problem? The problem is that it's talking about morality and these are judges, these are lawyers, these are not theologians. The second problem is that they are not only opining about something that which they do not know, but they are actually opining and making, drawing a conclusion that it's no longer immoral. They're using the past tense, had been condemned as immoral. There's nothing that's changed in the scripture. You can still read 1 Corinthians 6 for yourself or Romans 1 and 2 for yourself, and you can clearly see that God does not condone, he condemns homosexual activity. And yet here they are trying to suppress the truth of that fact, even of a religious fact. Next slide, please. It ignores what the Bible has to say on the matter. It ignores the ordinary meaning of words. It ignores sexual complementarity. It ignores social science for you to claim that same-sex marriage is just as good as marriage that, that God designed between a man and a woman. Next slide. Let me just comment on the social science for those of you that uh, believe that uh, society should make its decisions and policies based on uh, facts that are empirical facts, that can be established in, in, in longitudinal studies and, 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 and in test tubes and in scientific uh, ways, why is it that when Mark Regeneris published the largest, most complete study of the effects on children of same-sex marriages from the University of Texas, and complied with every one of the criteria and requirements under the APA, the American Psychological Association's guidelines, which is something that most of the previous studies that had ever been done, which weren't as big, weren't as thorough, and didn't follow all of the criteria of the APA. Why is it that when he concluded his study and found that children are harmed dramatically more in a same-sex home than they are in a traditional biologically intact home, why is it when he sent a copy of that to the Supreme Court before they issued their opinion, they refused to even cite it in a footnote? He gave you three numbers in his study. The first number is two. That represents the 2% of children that are sexually abused in this country every year living in biologically intact families where their mother and their father, their biological mother and father, also live with them. And that's horrible that 2% of the children are abused. But what the study found was that if you take away one of those biological parents and you try to raise a child in a single parent family and that single parent uh, dealing with all of the difficulties they have allow a lot of strange men into the home, the percentage of children being sexually abused go up to 10%. And then if you change the situation to where there is two daddies or two mommies in the home, the percentage of children being subjected to child abuse in this country go up to 23%. That was the conclusion of this APA-certified study done at the University of Texas by Mark Regeneris. And yet they're suppressing the truth. Instead, the court writes in its opinion that they can have normal, happy families. Maybe anecdotally... Maybe exceptionally, but not according to the science. Not statistically. Next slide. The second thing I think Romans teaches us about how we get to this situation in society where we uphold what God has called an abomination as marriage is we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship and serve ourselves, the creature, rather than the creator. That's what Romans one twenty nine indicates uh, how uh, sin gets further ingrained next slide the majority opinion said this and I'm just going to point out in bold letters the word immutable there that the, the court here was trying to make the case for same sex marriage and the basis upon which was a lie and the lie is this that you're born homosexual that it's an immutable characteristic like the color of my skin is half Mexican or the color of an African American's skin, or your skin as a white person. That's an immutable characteristic. But your choices in what sexual activity you engage in or don't engage in, there is no scientific evidence yet that that's immutable. And yet they've exchanged the truth. They not only suppressed the truth, but they've exchanged the truth for the lie. And they're trying to convince you that it's the same uh, thing as the race or color of your skin and you can't help yourself. Next slide. The third thing that Romans says will happen when sin finally co- and co- captures a society is that not only will they uh, approve of those things, uh, but they will not only will they do those things that are worthy of death, but they will give healthy approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And you can see in the next slide what the Supreme Court did. They concluded, quote, they asked for equal dignity in the eyes of the law and the Constitution grants them that approval, that right, Verse twenty-eight, page 28. So for me, I see this as not an issue. I see this as the pattern in which all sin influences a nation and that that nation will fall if it fails to adhere to God's law. Now, we can suppress the truth, we can exchange the truth for a lie, and we can even approve of those who do what we know is wrong and pretend that they have a right to do it or that it's, it's good, but that will not change the reality of God's view on that matter. Next slide. This is something that our society has continued to do over and over and over again. Again. In the courts, the way they have done it is by writing into the Constitution rights that do not exist. Rights that are in fact the right to do things that are sinful. We started out with the fundamental right for a man and a woman in, in their marriage bed that are married together to decide on contraception. But no longer did we have that right then we quickly added the right for unmarried people to have that same privilege to do whatever they want sexually with one another. And then that was not just something that we allowed them to do, that was something that we constitutionally guaranteed their right to do, and hence we had the 70s, the 60s and the 70s. And then once you had the right, whether you were married or unmarried, to do whatever you wanted to do, whatever desire or lust that you had in your heart, to follow it in our society as a constitutional matter, then the Constitution was rewritten once again to help you avoid the responsibility for the consequences of that kind of lascivious behavior, and we know it as Roe v. Wade. The right to not only uh, uh, control reproduction, but to actually destroy the product of reproduction, the baby, the fetus, and abortion. And once you had the right for heterosexual couples to do whatever they want and not be held accountable for the consequences of their sin, then what was preventing the homosexuals from having the same right? Nothing under the eyes of the law. And hence the reason why we recognize homosexuality as a free uh, something you should be free to do and that fact, sodomy laws that were prohibiting it were unconstitutional. And it was that slippery slope that we've been on for decades that led last year to the conclusion that, you know what, what they're doing is just as valid as what we're doing. We can call both acts marriage. Now, folks, there is a reason why our society is not more discerning than that. And it's because they're ignorant of what God's Word has to say. And we, as the pillar of God's truth, the church, have a responsibility to preach the truth. Next slide. The end result, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, is very plain. If you're allowed to follow every lust, every impulsive thought that you have as a constitutional right, then you will become the most debauchery, you'll engage in the most despicable behavior, and our society has no hope. And that's exactly what they saw in their societies back then. And we have a choice as a people to either be silent and stop thinking about it or to stand up and make sure that everybody understands and our young people understand there are real consequences to that behavior. It's not because we're bigoted or homophobic. It's not because we hate them. It's the exact opposite. It's the same reason why you spank your child when he rebels and engages in something that you know is not good for him. You have to... To love them enough to teach them the truth. And that's what we in the church need to decide whether or not we do. Whether we love people enough to stand up for what is right. Next slide. So, what do we do now? Romans 12, verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Next slide. Pursue peace. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, "With all men and the sanctification without which no one, no one, no one, not you, not me, will see the Lord. We need to be reconciling. We need to be pursuing peace with our fellow men, so that they might find peace with the Father, so that they might be sanctified by God, set apart for a holy purpose, given new meaning in their life." Next slide. Here's what I believe the Supreme Court's decision does not do. First of all, it does not. It does not prevent us from speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians chapter four verse 15 says. It does not prevent us, or require us uh, from uh, require us to host weddings. That with uh, between for people that God has not joined together, it doesn't prevent us from hosting weddings for for those that God joins together, like Matthew nineteen five says, and it does not require us to participate in the the, the sins of others, such as assisting a same sex wedding, which First Timothy chapter five verse twenty two forbids us to do, and it does not prevent us from helping those struggling with same sex attraction. You know, there's a lot of different categories of sin. And 1 Corinthians teaches that sexual sin is the most pervasive kind. It's, it's because it, 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 it stains you, it, it, it distorts you, twists you from the inside out. And therefore, it's one of the most dangerous kinds of sins. But it's not something that only uh, one uh, version of sexual sin will be worse than another. In fact, There are many sexual sins that have nothing to do with homosexuality. But we need to be willing to face those sins, call them sin, and help people that are struggling with those sins no matter what the nature of that sin is. Next slide. We need to respond with tremendous sensitivity. There's a a, a huge need for those that are struggling with same-sex attraction inside and outside the church. Next slide. Ask yourself this question. How do, how do people that are struggling with same-sex attraction perceive the church, the midway church? How do you think they, they view y'all as individuals? Next slide. If you're guilty of crude jesting and name-calling and uh, making, uh, belittling them and bullying them, or are you more guilty of praying for them befriending them, inviting them to study God's word. I wonder if our approach is predetermining the outcome. Next slide. I think if we do the former and just berate them, we're going to see them continue on that spiral. And they're going to continue to follow that subculture and become further and further enslaved to that sin to a point where they can't distinguish it from their own identity. On the other hand, if we were to hold out God's grace and mercy and truth, I think you'd be surprised how many confused people might want to understand, might be willing to open up and begin a spiritual journey. Next slide. What would I tell someone? I've got an aunt who is one of the leading nurses at the Memphis Hospital System And she's dating one of the leading surgeons there. And she's my favorite aunt. I've got 13 aunts and uncles. But she's engaged in a lifestyle that I believe God does not condone. And when I have an opportunity, and perhaps you know someone that you have a relationship with struggling with this same sin... What would you tell them? I think we want to tell them that God has a a new name for them. That they don't have to define themselves by their sin. They don't have to identify with people that are also caught up in that sin. That God has a different name for them, and that is He wants them to be children of God. And so I return to our passage in 1 Corinthians 6. And I just bring a highlight to you, a couple of phrases. And one is that when it talks about people that are sinning, one of the examples is in fact people that are engaging in practicing homosexuality. And what it tells those people, despite the fact that 60% of Americans think you can't change if you're homosexual, what the scriptures teach is that the people back then who were practicing homosexuality were such such were some of you in other words, with God's help, they were able to change they were able, as pointed out here in Romans 8:14 to be led by the spirit of God, the spirit through the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God, obeying the Gospel, those who are led by the Spirit of God can become sons of God. You can adopt, God will adopt you, and you can change. We have got to be convinced of that. We cannot give in to this lie that it's an immutable characteristic that they're born with and they can't help themselves and we just got to love them anyway. That is a cop-out. That is what, the, what Satan wants you to believe. Such were some of you thieves. Such were some of you greedy. You may struggle with lying and greed and thieving all of your life. You may be a kleptomaniac, but that does not make it right. And it does not mean you are hopeless. God can change you. The Spirit of God through God's Word can lead you in a different direction. Now, the next slide. It also not only says such were some of you, but it says how they changed. And it walks you through very clearly the process of transformation, of conversion, of being no longer enslaved to that sin, whatever that sin may be, including homosexuality. The first step is that you are washed. I believe that's a reference to baptism. Here's a scripture in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 that should be very familiar with you. It's this beautiful imagery of us dying to ourselves and being buried with Christ into His death. And we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead from the, by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. Not only can you have a new name as a Christian, as a child of God, but you can have a new life. That's what we need to be teaching. That's what we believe is the hope that lies within us. The fact that we're no longer the old person. We're the new person. When we walk out of that water game of baptism, we have been made a new creature. That's a tremendous opportunity for a second chance. It's one that I believe so many people on the spiral staircase of sin desperately are searching for. But you were washed. Next slide. And not only are you cleansed of that past sin, that old life, and made new, but when you come up out of that watery grave, what the what the reason why you can say, I was a thief, I was greed, I was practicing homosexuality, is because now you not only are no longer held accountable for those sins and then washed off, off of you, but you actually have a new purpose. He says you were sanctified. That's what it means to be set apart for God's purpose. Here's the verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He wants to use us for His glory. He wants you to know that you don't have to get caught in that cycle of sin, of hopelessness and selfishness and only pursuing the lusts of your heart. But instead, He wants to use you for a bigger purpose, to be part of something bigger, to be a part of the body of Christ and to be known in your community and those around you as a person of God. Next slide. Finally, there's a new hope that it promises you. Not only if you're washed and if you're sanctified will you be able to overcome those past sins, but when you stand before God, on the judge, when He sits on that judgment seat one day, and He will say to you, Enter in, thou good and faithful servant. You'll be declared innocent. You'll be declared not guilty. You'll be justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It all circles back to the fact that what we should be about as a church is being at peace with men to the extent possible and introducing them to how to reconcile with God and be at peace with God. Next slide. I remind you of two last verses and the lesson will be yours. In First Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, it says, "Take care that your liberty in Christ, that your freedom in Christ does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I can't understand why some people struggle with the sins that they do, because those are not the sins that I struggle with, but that doesn't mean that they aren't real. And that doesn't mean that you can just cut them off and leave them to their own fate. We have an obligation to preach the gospel to every creature. There is no sin that God can't put in the past tense, that He can't wash you of, that He can't sanctify you and use you for His glory despite the fact that you committed those sins in the past and that He won't declare you innocent of on the day of judgment because you're justified. Do you believe that? Then we need to make care, make, take care that we're not becoming so cloistered as a people that we are no longer speaking the truth, but instead we're leading people to believe the lie that we think what they're doing is okay too. We are compromising in the way we present God's truth to the point that they don't even know God opposes what they're doing anymore. If you, if they don't know that you oppose it, how are they going to know that your God opposes it? Because you are the pillar of that truth, the church. Last slide. The final admonition in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, I think applies here. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom, your religious liberty, this freedom we have in this country known as the First Amendment, to do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Just to have a nice comfortable building and being able to dress up and enjoy worship and enjoy the privileges that come with being a Christian. To 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 give into this uh, Americanized Christianity, which has become increasingly worldly and secular, but through love, serve other people. That's what we're called to do, not serve ourselves, but to serve God and to serve other people. If we were to become less inward and more outward and allow people to see the truths that make an impact in their lives, not just in ours. What will we say differently in the workplace? What kind of, how would our conversations change at school? How would we make an impact in our homes and the choices that we make and the entertainment that we allow into our home? We have a tremendous liberty in this country. Right now, for the most part, to practice our religion, how we see fit. But if we're only practicing a portion of it, if we're not practicing the part that's going to really make the biggest impact in society, I wonder if God's going to bless us. Or if He's going to see us as the ten-talent or the five-talent man who didn't use His talents. Like the one-talent man who buried it because he was too afraid because he knew God was such a, a tough, tough owner. Tonight, this morning, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity, if you're not yet a Christian, to become a part of what we just described there, being washed and and, and sanctified and justified. But if you're already a Christian and you know that your life has become an habitual crucifying of Christ afresh because you haven't done what He wants you to do, you haven't been the example in your community, in your home, that you know you should be. The reason why this church gathers together in part is to encourage one another and pray for one another. And we would do that at this time as well. Whatever your need is, please come as we stand and sing.